Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode, another podcast of eGeos. My name is Rochelle Kernan and today I have a really special guest. We have uh, Chris Walker here from BP. He is a subsurface squad lead in the Western Hemisphere, currently working on a carbon capture and utilization and storage project. Hi Chris, how are you doing today? Good afternoon, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me. Sure, yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, so to get started today, could you tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and maybe something that influenced you while you were growing up? Sure, yeah. Um, so I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, and I grew up there from birth till the age of 18 when I left to go away to university. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely one of the great things growing up there as a geologist is you're never too far away from the mountains. So. I was lucky enough to be able to take geology in high school, um, uh, to specialize in that at GCSE level and then A level in the British system. And that meant I got to go on a lot of cool field trips. So Northern Ireland's a great, very small, compact country for jumping in a minivan and being able to go uh, explore, see some great geology. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to, um, to to catch the bug early, mm-hmm. get to do lots of hiking around in the mountains, uh, playing around on beaches and seeing lots of rocks. So it was a, a great place to grow up and to have that love of geology instilled from a young age. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's that's awesome. Um, did you have like a favorite place that you would go to to look at the rocks? And if so, like what kind of rocks were they? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's there's lots of great places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of my favorites were the, the Mourne Mountains mm-hmm. uh, in Northern Ireland. That's a, an exposed granite batholith. Oh, cool. Uh, I think related to the opening of the Atlantic. Um, you know some of those uh, those igneous uh, features that, that that happened as the Atlantic was opening, um, and so now that forms sort of the the largest mountain range in Northern Ireland. So mm-hmm. it's just a great place to go hiking. Uh, we did a lot of outdoor adventure things there, and then you know the next weekend we go there on a geology field trip and we start to look at uh, granite uh, outcrops mm-hmm. and. Uh, roof pendants and things and chilled margins and intrusions so it was really great being able to appreciate it both for the um the experience of getting outside and outdoors mm-hmm. and then also understanding the geologic features and the the forces that influence the development of the topography so it was really special being able to look at it from from both ends as it were yeah uh, one of the other places I really liked was uh, up in the north coast of Northern Ireland. Obviously, we have the Giant's Causeway that's very famous with the um, hexagonal basalts that you know represent mm-hmm. cooling in a in a very slow uh, phase, allowing the columnar jointing to develop. But there's a whole bunch of other igneous features along the coast as well. Um, and one that really sticks out to me is a place called Ballantoy Harbour. Mm-hmm. It's a classic place that you know all the field trips always go to. But you've got um, some the remnants of old volcanoes, you've got plugs, and then you've got the metamorphic zones around it, uh, all intruded into these uh, beautiful white chalks. Mm-hmm. So it's very striking. It's very, it's very easy to see the geology, which is great, that contrast between the black basalt and the white chalk. Uh, and it also happens to be very picturesque. 
and then it was also really exciting um, a couple of years ago to see it all featured in the Game of Thrones uh, when that was filmed up in Northern Ireland. So mm -hmm. I was watching it and, you know, looking at the Iron Islands, as it were, and the HBO show, but instead of being able to say, that's Ballantoy, I've been there, I've mapped that. So <laughs> That's cool. It's, uh, <laughs> Good to, good to be able to watch the uh, TV shows and point out the geology in the background to uh, your family who isn't interested at all. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I totally understand. So could you tell us a little bit more about where you went to school? Uh, what are your degrees? And uh, do you have a story about your career path that you could perhaps share with us? Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was leaving high school, um, the, the UK system is that you apply to a university to specialize in a subject. So mm -hmm. different from the American system where you you go to a school and then you sort of work out your major after you get there a lot of times. Yep. Um, very much in the UK system, you are accepted into a, a university to read a subject. Uh, so I, I, as I was graduating, graduating, I was torn between geology and geography. Mm -hmm. um, I was always better at geology, but... I think I always saw more paths to employment through geography. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like that kind of opened up more career goals, mm -hmm. uh, more career opportunities. Um, and, and so I you know, applied to a, a variety of different schools. Um, but I remember looking through the prospectus at uh, Oxford University, and I saw that the acceptance rate for geography was somewhere around like 20%, mm -hmm. and the acceptance rate for geology was somewhere around 70%. And I was like, <laughs> think I'm going to apply for geology. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I applied to study geology at Oxford and I was lucky enough to be accepted. So um, I ended up there uh, doing a four-year combined uh, bachelor's and master's of science degree mm -hmm. in, in geology or actually earth sciences. It switched to shortly after I started. Um, and that was really good. That was really great. Uh, Oxford's slightly further away from the rock outcrops than mm -hmm. I was used to from Northern Ireland, um, but it was a really great department with a really good grounding in uh, both the, sort of the traditional geosciences, um, you know, what a fossil looks like, uh, how to understand what a basalt is, um, but at the time it was also transitioning into that sort of earth science phase and thinking a lot more about um, both earth system processes and then obviously um, things like the carbon cycle and really getting us a good grounding in, uh, in Earth systems and the way that everything's sort of interconnected together, you know, the feedback loops between tectonics and climate. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was just a really, a really, really good education uh, and a really good grounding to, um, to launch from. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, uh, I was, um, <laughs> came to the end of my four-year degree and the market was sort of in a bit of a slump and so like many people i thought this is great i'll go to some graduate education so i applied to a, a series of uh different uh grad schools um and was lucky enough to get accepted to columbia university uh, mm -hmm. in new york so i packed my bags and flew across the ocean and spent five years in new york uh, studying out of the lamont doherty earth observatory mm -hmm. um where I did a PhD in structural geology. Uh, so that was a, a lot of fun uh, living in New York in the early 2000s. Um, and I think, again, I, I sort of had the best of, of all worlds. Um, I would take classes in the city in New York, mm -hmm. uh, and then I would do my research out at Lamont Doherty, which is um, just north of New York. So it's set okay. in these beautiful forests on the river. And even better than that, my field site was in uh, Nevada. Oh, cool. So 
every spring and fall, I would get to drive across the country and basically go hiking in the mountains of Nevada for months at a time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And just doing some old school field napping, trying to understand the relationships between um, the the faults and the rocks uh, and thinking about big scale tectonic processes, again, related to rifting. So that was really exciting, you know, getting to see rocks that no one had ever really seen before. Um, That was kind of physically challenging to get to and definitely very adventurous for, um, you know, for someone who came from the suburbs of Belfast. Yeah. So learned lots there about, you know, the wilderness and survival, (laughs) getting that great fieldwork experience. And and, and yeah, just feel really lucky to have have been able to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. Um, would you work in like, like what part of Nevada were you working in for your, your field work for your PhD? I was just north of Las Vegas. Oh, okay, um, you were. So in mm-hmm. eastern Nevada, yeah, right around the Nevada-Utah-Arizona border. Mm-hmm. So mapping a mountain range called the Mormon Mountains. Okay. Um, where some of the early ideas on low angle normal faulting were developed. Okay, cool. Um, so lots of great exposures of these very enigmatic uh, very low angle uh, features that cut across the entire mountain range. Mm-hmm. Um, so the I think the earliest interpretations had them as a thrust, and then the next generation of workers came along and mapped it as a backslid thrust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think the next generation of workers came along and said, well, actually, no, this is a low angle normal fault. It's not a reactivated thrust. It's broken through... Um, uh, a, a new it's it's not reactivating an existing fault it's broken a new fault um through the hillside mm-hmm. and uh and, and people started to put together estimates of very very large uh um uh, displacement values on mm-hmm. on these faults uh however there are challenges with being able to have large displacement on very low angle faults it sort of violates a lot of um yeah. basic rock mechanics laws mm-hmm. uh so the professor i was working with uh, mark anders and uh, Nick Christie Blick had this hunch that instead of it being um, uh, a rooted normal fault that was uh, actually accommodating hundreds of kilometers of displacement, it was actually a rootless landslide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh. so I, my job was to go out there and kind of map everything and look for directional indicators and try to think about how do you relate what you can see on the surface to what mm-hmm. could be buried in the subsurface, um, mm-hmm. making those models and trying to sort of uh, you know look for the evidence that helped to distinguish between them. Um, and so I think that was something that, you know, really, really helped me future, further in my career, mm-hmm. um, being able to collect that evidence, evaluate it impartially, uh, and then apply it to the, the subsurface and the things that you couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely a really good education there, but, um, but kind of very, very slow and time consuming to make a lot of those observations, Yeah. Uh, especially compared with, um, you know, a lot of the colleagues I was working with that were more sort of around, okay, let's run a computer model. Mm-hmm. Oh, didn't work. Let's tweak a parameter. Yep. <laughs> you know, they'd have 16 different papers written and 14 different hypotheses disproved yeah. by lunchtime. Yep. And I'd still be there, uh, you know, looking through my air photographs, thinking about, is it this, is it this <laughs> one millimeter or this one millimeter that I need to include as part of the, the, the Pennsylvanian system? So mm-hmm. it, it was kind of frustrating that it was so slow, but you know, it was definitely a really thorough and a, and a great experience and, you know, being very attentive to details and uh, been able to entertain you know, multiple models and multiple working hypotheses to, um, to drive toward a conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so how did you go exactly from uh, that type of work to then um, going into the energy sector that you're in right now? I assume you probably started off as like 
traditional petroleum and then how did you go from that to where your role is right now in carbon capture uh, yeah so I, I i was specializing in structural geology um mm-hmm. uh, again it took me a, a long time to do that degree because so much of it was based around uh field mapping mm-hmm. and it's really hard to develop solid conclusions based on half a map yeah so i, I kind of ended up in the situation where after five years i'd just about gotten my map complete um <laughs> but i hadn't really thought about anything intelligent to say uh, about it mm-hmm. uh so <laughs> again a story familiar to many grad students my funding ran out yeah. And I was faced with the choice of either staying in New York and, and working for free in pretty much one of the most expensive markets in the world yeah. or, uh, you know, finding some way to support myself. Mm-hmm. So I started interviewing with a lot of uh, oil companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to AEPG and AGU and just, you know, tried try to get my face out there in front of anyone that might be hiring. Um, and yeah, I was lucky enough to make it through the interview process at BP. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got hired on at BP uh, just as a master's student um, as a structural specialist. And then over the next couple of years, uh, working nights and weekends, I was able to write my PhD thesis and eventually come back to New York and defend it and finally get my PhD. Um, but I thought that was, a, it, it was really good then being hired in as a structural specialist and being yeah. able to apply a lot of those uh, same learnings that I developed uh, in the field mm-hmm. to the subsurface data sets and, and, and to the, the seismic, uh, and, and to learn all about seismic interpretation um, and, and be able to apply, you know, those different models to these different scales of, mm-hmm. uh, of observation. Um, so a lot of things that will transfer across, you know, being able to develop multiple models, being able to stitch together, you know, different lines of evidence and do a coherent hypothesis. Um, but lots that was new as well. You know, I'd never really looked at seismic before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd never really had much well information to deal with before. So a really steep learning curve. Um, and yeah, I was just really grateful to have a lot of good mentors and, and folks that I worked with to be able to help drag me up that learning curve and, and integrate me into the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was uh, almost 15 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was able to, to, to have a great career inside of BP, working as a structural specialist and then rotating through different um, assets, uh, doing a bit of uh, exploration, a bit of development, a bit of production. Um, I spent seven and a half years working on the Mad Dog Phase 2 mm-hmm. uh, project, um, which is a big deep water Gulf of Mexico field uh, that had been discovered, put online, and then found to be much larger than originally anticipated. Uh, and so we had to go through a, um, a field expansion process, uh, thinking about how much hydrocarbons in place there might be, and then trying to define the optimal development scenario to um, economically extract those resources. Uh, so that was just a really, really great opportunity mm-hmm. to get involved in a really big project um, that's just about coming to fruition, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm currently in Corpus Christi on vacation, and by coincidence, the Mad Dog Phase 2 platform is also currently in Corpus Christi. Uh, cool. Not quite on vacation, but yeah. it's, getting the, it's getting the finishing touches applied before it finally goes to its uh, ultimate destination. 200 miles south of New Orleans mm-hmm. um, to, to start production from the, the Mad Dog Phase 2 field. So uh, that, that was a really great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I maybe spent too long in that project. I ended up being on there for seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a long time in industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people sort of cycle through jobs you know, every three or four years or cycle through rotations every three or four years. Um, 
but yeah, I, I stayed with Mad Dog for seven and a half. Uh, it, it, it was too long in some ways, but it was also really good in some ways because the project changed a lot. Yeah. Um, I really got to see one asset come through uh, appraisal into, into um, well, almost expiration into appraisal and then finally all the way up into development. Um, so the, the, the job was constantly changing and the problems were constantly changing, which made it uh, still very interesting. Um, and it was a very high profile asset in the company, so it got a lot of attention. So I think that was you know, a good place to be. But um, after seven and a half years of, of slowly watching a project develop, uh, I really wanted to get into more exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up doing a rotation in the exploration function, uh, again, working as a structural specialist, um, but this time with sort of uh, an entire Western Hemisphere mandate, being able to support the different exploration teams um, that were developing prospects all across the Western Hemisphere, and being able to come in as a structural specialist and uh, help them out with uh, fault seal analysis and restorations, um, and, and just helping to make sure that we had pushed the uh, the technical due diligence on each of the prospects to the um, to the, to the level that was necessary uh, for the company to make a decision whether or not to drill them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very different from being focused on one postage stamp in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico to really being able to expand my horizons and look all the way up and down the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and that then <laughs> led me to carbon capture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was about three years ago. Okay. Um, and so that was around the time uh, when I think things started to really change rapidly in the energy industry mm-hmm. um both with the attention that companies are starting to we're starting to pay to uh things like carbon capture and then with the changes going on in the external environment um the analysts were starting to demand a lot more movement on uh carbon reduction programs and governments were starting to both increase the amount of attention they were paying mm-hmm. and the amount of incentives available um, and so I think that has really kickstarted a lot of uh, activity inside um, uh, a lot of different companies. Uh, and BP is absolutely no exception to that. Mm-hmm. So again, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to come in and do some uh, subsurface characterization for some uh, projects that we were looking at back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and structural geology was a very natural um, uh, skill set to be able to apply to that. Uh, so a lot of the subsurface characterization we were doing back then was around fault seal analysis and top seal analysis and really looking for structural closures that might be able to accommodate um, CO2. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I heard about the role, I was, I was really excited. Um, it really matched with my uh, internal goals of mm-hmm. wanting to do something new um, and really wanted to, to be able to drive things forward. Um, when I was doing exploration, I really wanted to be the first person to drill a well in a basin. You know, I really like that sense of the unknown yeah. and being able to do something that no one's ever done before. You know, see the seismic line that no one's ever seen before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, make those observations, drill that well. Um, and, you know, it turns out that there there aren't really very many basins left to explore in the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the oil and gas industry has been tremendously successful over the last hundred years, mm-hmm. and they have pretty much evaluated everywhere there, where there is a sedimentary column. Mm-hmm. Um, so there just weren't that many opportunities, I thought, in exploration to be that person that could go in and start drilling the, the first well in a, in a new basin. Um, but I think carbon capture still has some of those frontiers left to be uh, to, to be met, some of those technical challenges still to be met. Um, so now there is still opportunity to go in and start drilling the first well in a basin uh, the, to evaluate the carbon storage potential. Um, mm-hmm. So that really interested me. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I was able to, to apply my technical skill set to that. Um, and then sort of as the 
roles have changed and as the incentives have increased, mm -hmm. um, being able to sort of grow and mature with the role and, and be able to bring on more of a, a business development and, and resource appraisal side of things um, into the work that I'm doing right now. Yeah. Oh, that's that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. So would you say that right now, uh, working in CCUS, that this has become sort of your dream job or your dream role? Or do you still feel like you're building uh, towards the dream that you have in the future for something? Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm really happy where I am right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of focus right now on the energy transition. Yeah. There's uh, a, a lot of realization that, um, I think uh, that the world has a carbon problem. Yeah. Um, there's there's just so much recognition from governments and stakeholders that uh, th that we can't continue to emit the same amount of uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere um, as we historically have. Uh, and <laughs> everyone agrees that something must be done about it. Mm -hmm. And I think the big challenge is, you know, both what what's possible to be done mm -hmm. and then what's realistic to be done economically. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the, uh, I think you might be aware that BP rolled out uh, a net zero ambition um, mm -hmm. earlier this year. And I think the company really has set out, uh, you know, what we think is possible to be done. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked about um, decreasing the amount of hydrocarbons that we produce, mm -hmm. uh, increasing investment in uh, renewable energy, um, but also making investments in carbon capture use and storage, uh, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, and um, geothermal energy. Mm -hmm. So that realization that uh, that basically renewables alone won't be enough uh, to power the world and provide energy for the citizens of the world in the future, while also reducing the amount of carbon that we put into the atmosphere. Um, so I think uh, CCUS is, is going to be a great contributor to those goals. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of industries that basically can't be displaced by renewable yeah. uh, by renewable energy um, there's a lot of things that can't be electrified uh, and there's a lot of what we call hard to abate emissions uh, that really do need uh, ccus to come through as a solution mm -hmm. um, so i find that really exciting and really empowering mm -hmm. um, you know it, i think <laughs> you know being able to, to help contribute to a larger goal like that is definitely um is definitely very exciting uh, and I find it very personally rewarding. Yeah. So I, I'm really excited to be able to contribute to it. Um, but I'm also nervous, you know, a, a lot of what we're doing uh, just depends on industry and uh, and government and public opinion all kind of moving at the same speed. Yeah. Um, BP made a, a big investment into going beyond petroleum 20 years ago, I think yeah. it was now. Mm -hmm. um, and the experience we had at the time was that basically we got out in front of the market um, and, uh, you know, that didn't end up being the, the best use of, of uh, shareholder money at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think we learned our lessons from that. Yeah. So everyone now is very cautious that <laughs> these things have to move at the same pace. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that everyone realizes that we can't ultimately switch to renewables overnight. Um, and that probably isn't the best uh, use of uh, scarce resources that exist on the earth. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I think that's where CCUS kind of has this niche to play mm -hmm. of being able to ramp up over the next um, 10 or 20 years to help provide those emission reduction technologies mm -hmm. uh, to help um, to help the world get to net zero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's like this time has been one of the most enlightening. It's just something new about all of it, fundamentally different from perhaps how things were in the past. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to see where all these companies are going and everything. I think it'll be really great. 
Um, do you have any advice for someone who's maybe still um, building towards their dream? So maybe someone who's been caught up in the energy transition, feeling kind of unsure about um, their skill set and you know, maybe a geologist going from a traditional petroleum role into more of a renewable or carbon capture uh, world. Do you have any advice for them at all? Yeah, one one of the things that I've certainly learned is just um, how much of your skill set really is transferable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, one of the ways that we're approaching it inside of BP is not to all of a sudden create a carbon capture use and storage division and have you know a bunch of CCUS specialists that never talk to anyone else in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that really just doesn't seem to be the best way to both build up the skill sets that are necessary or to manage a business. Mm-hmm. Um, we realize that you know this is a world that has uh, very limited skills and very strained resources these days. Yeah. Uh, and so the question is, you know, how do you most economically uh, staff projects while developing the skills that are necessary? Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've the, the approach that we've taken then is is making CCUS very much like any other part of the business, um, where folks can develop their skills, can rotate in, can work on a carbon capture use and storage project, and then rotate out and go work uh, in hydrocarbons or go work in geothermal. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the more that you do th- rotate through projects like that, mm-hmm. the more you realize that a lot of the basic skill sets are the same. Um, you know, we're still dealing with the same subsurface information that needs to be evaluated. We're still looking at seismic data. We're still uh, interpreting well data. Um, and, and so, you know, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the advice is just, you know, you need to, to develop your technical skills to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the person that sees the most rocks has won, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the, the more you're able to see uh, different rocks and understand different depositional environments and different structural settings, the more you're able to tailor those observations to the questions that need to be answered. So to, to whether it's developing a hydrocarbon resource or a tight oil resource or finding somewhere to store CO2, the better your subsurface description and the better you're able to characterize the subsurface, um, the more successful your project's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there are nuances to carbon capture use and storage. CO2 is going to behave differently uh, in the subsurface than hydrocarbons will. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the completion technologies might be different. Some of the exploration techniques may be different. Um, but you can see the same thing about the unconventional industry You know, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, as the as that was being developed inside a lot of the major companies, uh, it was different. The, mm-hmm. the strategies for developing those resources were different. The the fracturing technology still needed to be developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know we shouldn't be we shouldn't be afraid of new things. Uh, instead, you can just view it as a, a technical challenge to be met. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the advice that I would give is yeah, just to to keep learning, to keep trying to better yourself, uh, mm-hmm. and just to make sure that you're up to date on the the latest techniques and the latest software. Um, and then I think you'll find that those skills, once you develop them, can be applied to many different situations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for definitely bringing uh, some positivity to that. That's great. And then um, to finish up today, do you have anything to share with us about how you personally maintain your happiness and your success? <laughs> the big the big one. question of the hour <laughs> yeah this is this has definitely been a, a challenging year yeah um so i i realize that i'm i'm lucky in many ways um mm-hmm. you know i've got a very supportive uh, wife and family uh, and i have that flexibility um to be able to work from home and uh 
I, I'm set up in a company that very much supports that, um, that, that had very much invested in a lot of those remote working technologies before mm -hmm. the pandemic hit. Yeah. Um, w one of the stories about BP is that we were uh, hit very hard by Harvey um, back in 2017, mm -hmm. um, where our entire office building was flooded overnight and remained flooded for somewhere in the order of three to four months. Oh so we very quickly at that time had to develop on the fly a lot of these remote working technologies. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we went from a situation where everyone had a, a, a big box computer at their desk to all of a sudden no one being able to access any of those big desktop computers. Um, so we had to develop a lot of cloud computing technologies and remote working technologies, uh, or, or at least scale them up very rapidly um, after a very unexpected event. Uh, so BP was definitely lucky then that when the pandemic hit, we had developed a lot of those skills already. We had mm -hmm. a lot of those contracts in place, uh, and we were very much on that journey toward remote working um, already. So I feel very fortunate to be able to work for a company that, that was sort of already on that path. Mm -hmm. So. Um, as the pandemic was, you know, coming into focus uh, a year and a half ago, we were very much of the opinion that this is going to be another Harvey. You know, mm -hmm. we packed up our stuff and we said, all right, see you all in two months. Um, it has turned out to be slightly longer than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it has turned out to be slightly more challenging. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, having the, the technologies in place, I think, has made things, uh, 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 has made that transition a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also really lucky to be, you know, working with a, a great team uh, and just a bunch of really motivated individuals. Um, I think it is different uh, for a lot of these teams that are focused on the energy transition because there is that excitement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is that desire to, to push yourself and to um, and to feel that you're working on something that's not just contributing to the bottom line of your company, uh, but is hopefully uh, contributing to the, the benefit of the earth. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, the development of hydrocarbons has that same feeling because, you know, the world needs energy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think people have, have gotten away from feeling, you know, necessarily almost that that pride in providing uh, the hydrocarbon energy to the world, mm -hmm. uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, and, and so working in this space where we're, we're, we're hoping to store CO2 for the world, uh, I think does allow you to feel like you're um, that you're involved in something that's bigger than just yourself and bigger than just your company. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've definitely drawn a lot of strength from that over the last year and a half. Yeah. Um, but it, it, that has to be balanced as well with, you know, your own sort of mental health and uh, the recognition that there really is only one of you. And so making sure that you don't take on too much, making sure that you, you still retain that work-life balance. Um, I'm sure as everyone <laughs> who's listening <laughs> can testify, mm -hmm. uh, has been a challenge over the last year and a half. Um, so yeah, staying grounded is is tough, and just making sure that you can um, that you can create that space to to turn off the computer and and do something else that uh, really catches your attention or catches your passion, uh, I think is also very important. So mm -hmm. again, I'm lucky enough to have three wonderful children that <laughs> that I uh, that I can I can uh, go and play with when I turn off my computer, and um, yeah, I've been discovering some old hobbies as well, like reading and. Uh, gardening and uh, playing guitar, just things that allow you to kind of turn off the brain a little bit and mm -hmm. uh, get out and enjoy nature and just enjoy the um, enjoy the, 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 the fruits of your labor, if mm -hmm. you want to look at it that way, you sure. know, making sure that you live to work and not just work to live. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, your candid responses. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And yeah, we'll definitely have to do a follow up and check in whenever you 
you come up with the next big revolution <laughs> in CCUS <laughs> and it takes over the markets or whatever the next job is. <laughs> thank you so much for meeting. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. Take care.